Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer of the show, Colin Morgan, and today on the podcast, we are joined by Josh Abramson, who built and sold collegehumor.com, vimeo.com, bustedtees.com, and most recently in 2018, TeePublic. Before we get there... As you'll hear between John and Josh today, there's going to be a lot of technical terms and definitions that Josh uses. So I've actually added all of these definitions to our show notes page over at builttosell.com and encourage you to have that page open as you're listening to today's show. Okay, so now let me tell you a little bit more about Josh, who, as I mentioned, sold College Humor, Vimeo, and Busted Tees back in May of 2011 to FirstMark Capital. Now, self-admittedly, Josh made a number of mistakes building that company, as well as selling it. However, he learned from those mistakes to build TeePublic into a $40 million company, having just over $4.5 million in EBITDA before he sold the business to Redbubble in a deal that was valued at around 10 times EBITDA. Here to share with you the full story is Josh Abramson. Enjoy. Josh Abramson, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I, I want to start with a dude that has the <laughs> the confidence to turn down a nine million dollar offer at the age of eighteen. Like when I read that, I was just blown away. So walk back that story. What what on earth did you do for t- to get a nine million dollar offer for a as an eighteen year old? Yeah. So you know, it really started off. Um, you know, is a project that I thought, you know, maybe if I was lucky, I'd make a little bit of money, but I didn't anticipate it ever turning into you know, an actual business that was going to, you know, make millions of dollars or even, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. Um, but then that all changed very quickly. Um, I started College Humor in the um, the fall of 1999. So I was a, um, a freshman in college at the University of Richmond. And then um uh, you know, very quickly started making a pretty good amount of money for a college students. So I was, you know, I think the first month that we were online, we got a check for like $2,500. And then the next check was $5,000 and then 10000 and then twenty, And it kind of just kept going. What was the business um, model? It was really just, you know, I remember when somebody told me many years later, they were like, oh, so you have a, a media business. And I was like, well, I don't, I don't know what a media business does actually. And, you know, of course, I'd been building a media business, but I'd never, you know, used that term before. I didn't really understand the media business, but um, you know, the the idea was broadly just, you know, let's put content on the internet and then we'll sell advertising against it. And it was also at a time when, um, you know, I think I, I explain this story sometimes to entrepreneurs who, um, you know, miss parts of it because it's just a very different market right now. Back then in 99, it was the case that you could just, you know, put uh, just a line of code on your website and you would start getting checks every month. I mean, they would just, you know, um, put banner ads on the top of your page and you would make a couple of dollars CPM. So, you know, we were highly incentivized just to generate page views. There was no, um, you know, thought around, you know, as media businesses today have gotten much more advanced with targeting and segmentation and those types of things. Back then it was just like, how many 
people can we get to the website and how many pages can we generate because it's just going to make us more money. So and that they was were really... coming for jokes, right? Humor. Yes. So in the beginning, um, if you were a college student in 1999, it's likely that you didn't have high speed internet when you were graduating from college or from high school rather. And then when you got to college, you had a probably a brand new laptop that your parents bought you and you had high speed internet for probably the first time in your life. So there wasn't, you know, this was many years before YouTube or Facebook, there wasn't a whole lot to do from a content perspective, certainly relative to, you know, today's world. Um, and what we would used to do was we would literally just like email funny pictures and videos to each other and people on our, our hall growing up, you know, in, in, in college would have like, um, you know, a server on their desktop, basically, that would house, you know, all the different, um, you know, funny videos that they had collected, basically. So College Humor really was just like, well, let's just take all this stuff that's kind of floating around the dorm rooms, like quite literally just getting passed around over instant messenger and email, and let's put it all in one place um, and, you know, try to promote it and get people to go to that website. Um, so that was really, you know, it's a very simple idea. Um, and then it started to get a lot of attention very quickly. Um, I think, you know, in part just because of the, the moment in time that we had started it. Um, and there were a couple businesses that were trying to aggregate content websites like ours. Um, one of them was called eFront, which was a venture backed company that was out acquiring businesses. And their model was basically, we're going to make you an offer, which in our case was $9 million. We're going to pay you out you know, a small percentage of that today. And then the rest is just going to be a function of, you know, your, um, you know, continued audience growth and page views over the next couple of years. So it was basically an earnout. Um, and at first it was, you know, I was 18 when I got that offer. So I was just like, wow, this is insane. Um, but then I showed it to my father who, you know, had run businesses before and he brought in, uh, his attorney. And, you know, once I started talking to people who were more sophisticated than myself about it, it started to, you know, we started to poke holes and like, you know, what is this company? Like, what are the chances that they actually can pay all this money? And, and then I think the conclusion that I came to on my own um, was, look, based on what we're making right now in ad revenue, if we just continue doing what we're doing, we'll eventually make this much revenue anyway. And we don't really have much in terms of expenses. So, I think that we, you know, will own 100% of the business and we'll make this money regardless if the internet advertising market continues like it is currently. And there are already some like, you know, small cracks in the seams of, of that market that we were starting to just notice. So there was a little bit of a question mark of like, is this, you know, at this point, we're in like early 2000. So um, there's a little bit of like, well, maybe this isn't going to go exactly as these guys think. So while we did walk away, it wasn't like somebody, you know, put a $9 million check in my hand and I ripped it up. So what it was, was the downstroke? Like, what was the cash portion of the $9 million? I recall it being a couple hundred thousand dollars. So maybe, um, maybe three or $400,000. And then, you know, something like, you know, whatever, $100,000 a month or, you know, some amount for three years, um, which was you know, again, um, had we done the deal, that company ended up going bankrupt, I think, less than two years later. So the acquiring um, company. Yeah, maybe it was 18 months. So we certainly never would have gotten that money. Interesting. Interesting. 
And as you look back now, I know that was a long time ago, but what's the key lesson that you take away from that experience? Well, I think, you know, the one thing that I think about a lot with all businesses and, you know, certainly speaking to a lot of friends who are in the, you know, venture capital business, I think a common issue that first time entrepreneurs face is this sort of like just the lack of ability to really process what compounding growth looks like over an extended period of time. And, you know, I always think of that old um, story about the like, you know, guy in the chessboard and he wants, you know, a grain of rice on the first, you know, square and then two on the second. And then by the time you get midway around um, the board, you know, there's been there's there's never been that much rice in the entirety of the world to like fulfill that. Um, you know, so like that idea of like just not really being able to wrap your head around what that looks like over time. And I think about, um, you know, people who just they sell early because they're they're not really thinking about, well, like, you know, yeah, we're growing 20 percent a year. But like, what is 20 percent a year of growth looks, looks like, you know, five years out or that sort of thing. So I think it was, um, you know, partially just feeling like we, you know, had something that was growing and, um, you know, this was a, again, it was like a specific situation where there was a big earnout and, um, and in order for the earnout to be valuable, the business had to maintain value anyway. And we just did the math that, you know, if the business continued to become more valuable or as valuable over that period of time, it would be more lucrative to just own it outright. Um, Again, I think if they had just offered me $9 million cash, like I would have taken it and we probably wouldn't be having this conversation right now. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, walk us through what happens next because you team up with some friends and sort of continue to build this business. What was the what was the next sort of major milestone for this business? Yeah, so we um what was interesting is, you know, as, as the entire ad market sort of fell apart, um that was actually for me, I think the moment, you know, the, the biggest inflection point in the business, because up until then it was like so easy. It was too easy. It was like, we were just putting, you know, jokes and funny pictures and funny videos that we weren't even making mostly on a website. Um, and we were just getting checks every month and it was just, you know, it felt like magic. And then that went away. And at that point we, you know, we'd saved up a little bit of money and it was just my best friend from high school and I who were working on the business. At that point, we brought on a third partner who was an engineer who was, um, you know, hugely important to the business. But it was just the three of us and we were all college kids. So we didn't really need to make money and or certainly didn't need to make a lot of money. Um, and that was when I really started to figure out how to actually make money on an audience on the Internet, meaning like, you know, it's one thing to just put ad code up and, and get a check. But when you're actually having to figure out how do I get people to transact or to actually facilitate commerce and, um, you know, started to do affiliate programs and, and, you know, actually go out and sell ads myself in a way that, you know, was not easy, but, um, but you start to learn that, you know, with kind of like, I don't want to just say local advertising, but advertising for small businesses, you can sort of grind your way into some revenue there because, you know, you pick up the phone a thousand times and you're going to get some people, assuming you have something of value to sell, you're going to get a couple people who bite. And if you can target the right people 
and they can make a little bit of money advertising with you, then they'll come back. And so I, I learned all of that in a real way, um, just by like feeling like I had to figure it out and having my back against the wall because, you know, I had a little taste of what success feels like and how good it is to just, you know, be earning more money on a monthly basis than you know what to do with. Like that was a, a pretty intoxicating feeling because I I never had that before, of course. Um, so that desire to just, you know, get that back and to not lose this thing that we were building, um, I, I think was really, uh, you know, a huge turning point for us. So that was, you know, 2001. Uh, I was a junior in college. Um, by the time I graduated, um, we were making enough money that my business partners and I decided to just work on our business full time. I always felt like college. This is still was, college humor. Still college humor. I always felt, though, that college humor was a means to an end. Like I used to say, I, I couldn't imagine being like, you know, 30 years old and running a website called College Humor, um, which, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to think how old I was when I finally left College Humor, but um, probably about that old, maybe a little older. But um, but it was more about just like feeling that um, the Internet back then really felt like the Wild West. It was like we just were, you know overflowing with ideas for businesses we thought we could start versus today where I feel like everything is super crowded and it's really challenging back then. And maybe part of this was just me being young, but um, it really felt like there was just endless opportunities and and places where we could do stuff. So, um, and I felt really confident about our relationship as business partners and we all sort of had different talents and worked together well How'd you guys uh, deal with the equity split? Because you were coming at this with some assets, right? You you had uh, you had a website. You brought in the engineer. Did you guys just go a third, a third, a third, or did you? We ended up. You have to earn it, or how did you guys um, start that? It changed over time, but by the time we sold the business, it was um, thirty five, thirty five, fifteen, fifteen between my two. um, Because we then brought on a fourth founder, and you know it was a little bit unorthodox the way that we did it. I think for a while it was, um, you know, we were thinking about it in terms of like actually splitting our revenue. Um, so, you know, when there was four people, we had, everybody was making 25% of our total income. Um, and that was just like how we were paying each other. And that was, that became a real number. You know, we were making millions of dollars a year by the time we were, you know, 24, um, and so that was like, you know, and we were living in an apartment that was a business expense because it was also our office. So we had like no expenses, just like taking, you know, big chunks of cash out of the business. So that felt really good, especially because we were so young. Um, but our equity was split a little bit differently. And I think, you know, it was, um, you know, these things are sometimes as much art as they are science in the early stages, especially when, you know, you're talking about people that you're living with and working with every day. And, um, you know, it was, I I think it, it worked out fine in the end, but it was definitely, um, there were moments when it became, you know, tricky just because, you know, the, um, you know, our agreement was essentially that, you know, all new businesses would be split equally. Um, and the college humor business was split in a different way. And then we started busted teas, which quickly became more lucrative than college humor. Um, even though I think we all agreed that it wasn't as valuable as an asset. Um, so ultimately, we just decided we're just going to split everything 35, 35, 15, 15. And that was how we did it. What was Busted Tees? Tell me about that company. 
So in 2003, we were living in California. We moved to San Diego, which is, you know, kind of a funny choice for like a, you know, internet startup at the time, but we thought it would be really fun. Um, and we thought we could do it from anywhere. So we moved to San Diego and we were working hundred hour weeks easily. We were just, you know, living and breathing our business, um, in a way that only a, a person that young, I think can, can do. Um, so, you know, we were trying to figure out like other stuff we could build. We had built, um, before Facebook, we kind of built like a, a social network, but it was for college kids, but we thought it was really more for people to date. We didn't realize we didn't have the like same vision and, um, obviously it, it, you know, didn't really work out too well, but a lot of time and energy went into that. We'd started some other little things on the side and, and none of them really got traction, but at the time, our biggest advertising vertical was T-shirts. There were a couple of T-shirt companies. And uh, I remember one guy who had a T-shirt business had just bought Robert Downey Jr.'s loft in L.A. And like we found out about him. We're like, well, that's crazy, <laughs> you know, um, selling T-shirts on the Internet. And this guy was, you know, paying us quite a bit of money every month for advertising. So, you know, it wasn't a, a you know, super out there idea. It was like, well, well, if this guy's making money doing this, like, I think we can do it as well or maybe better um and we have you know my business partner ricky is very funny and has great ideas and he was sort of the editorial lead for the, the comedy business so we're like, well, what if ricky can just come up with t-shirts and we can you know make our own so that was really how busted tea started and then over time we you know got more sophisticated and had you know more writers contributing and it became a real business but that was really how we started was we were struggling to find, you know, an advertiser market fit for college humor, you know, so we were doing very transactional type advertisements. So people who were, you know, really like buying ads to make money on the back end, um, as opposed to brand advertisers. And then the irony is that when we started Busted Tees, that was when I finally started to kind of crack the code on how brand advertising works. And I remember we got a, you know, a deal from Toyota and from some other like major brands. And those deals are much more lucrative than anything that's based on, um, you know, ROI, at least for us, for a comedy website that wasn't super targeted. So, um, so we, you know, we built busted tees, started growing like a weed. And then all of a sudden um, we similarly kind of hit the hockey stick, so to speak on our growth in college humor, because we figured out how to sell ads and, um, and that, and then we moved to New York and that's when I started to build out a real sales team and hired people who actually, you know, had worked at bigger companies and knew how to sell to agencies and that sort of thing. Um, and then, you know, when we moved to New York, it was like, uh, I mean, that first year in the city was crazy. We met so many people. We, you know, that was how we ultimately got connected to Barry Diller and, um, and around that time also started Vimeo, um, and where you can't you just know. throw that into like yeah. a side comment. <laughs> oh yeah, we sort of started this thing called Vimeo. I mean, that's kind of how it felt, to be honest. It's I know Vimeo is, you know, of all the businesses I've started, the one that's certainly the most valuable today. Um, but it was also the one that was kind of the most side project like at the time. Um we really? were, Yeah, I mean, you know, my business partner Jake, again, like our mentality was we are you know, we even called our, our company Connected Ventures. We wanted to just like keep starting businesses, um, College Humor being one of them. We had started Busted Tees. We'd started another t-shirt company that was more sort of like high-end fashion that didn't really work. 
um, you know, we had, we were still running the, the college social networking business, but at that point, Facebook had started and it was kind of clear that we were not going to be Facebook by any, any stretch. Um, and my business partner, Jake was one of the early vloggers. I mean, he was like, you know, there weren't that many people who were sort of documenting their lives on the internet and, and posting those videos um, every week. And, and he was doing it and had, um, you know, from the college humor um, experience, you know, there was, uh, I think he was just very well equipped to understand where video was heading. And, um, and the idea for Vimeo for him was really, you know, he was making these videos every week and it was, you know, he basically had to be a web developer to upload a video to the internet at that point in time. Um, I certainly didn't know how to do it in 2003. Um, so it was really just building a website that you could upload your videos to share with your friends and family. The vision was more like Flickr for video than it was what YouTube ended up becoming. Um, we actually, and I think part of the reason we didn't build YouTube is my fault because I was so anti anything copyrighted ending up on Vimeo because we'd been sued to College Humor. I knew, you know, uh, I knew we were probably going to sell College Humor by that point because it was making a lot of money. And I just, you know, that was what I felt. And Vimeo, you know, if we got in a lawsuit with Viacom, who were also, you know, trying to sell our business to, like that was going to be a problem. So we really put restrictions on the website to make it so that anything that could potentially be, you know, a clip from The Daily Show or whatever um, would get flagged and, and taken down. YouTube did the exact opposite. I mean, they basically uh, leaned into copyrighted material. And I think it's been well documented that that was you know, part of their strategy. So. Um, so, yeah, we just took a different approach and it was always a side project. I mean, it was like, <clears throat> excuse me, my partner Jake would you know, sort of have to like beg me for time to spend on it um, because we had other things that were, you know, it's sort of the innovator's dilemma, right? You're like, you know, working on one thing that, you know, has value. You have another thing that is basically, you know, a seed stage startup. Does it make sense to put your top engineering resources into this new thing when you're, you know, you can sort of see the finish line on the other thing. So that was, that was part of the issue. We eventually sold the combined businesses in 2006 to IAC. And it wasn't until that happened that we really started to invest more heavily in Vimeo. So when you say you, you sold the combined businesses, you're referring to College Humor and Busted Tea. And Vimeo. And Vimeo. Yeah. Okay. So those three businesses were and all combined in we called Connected Ventures. Vimeo was, I mean, the truth is, like, I made zero dollars on Vimeo, like, ever. Like, it was, you know, it was such a um, an early stage business that it kind of just got grouped into the college humor business. And I tried to split it out and, you know, maybe raise money for it separately or see if there was interest for Vimeo on its own. There was not. You know, we talked to some of the top VCs in New York and everybody thought it was interesting, but nobody was like, let's do this. Um, and I think from IC's perspective, our deal was structured. So they were buying 51% of the business. And then we had a put option to sell the remaining 49% five years down the road. Can you explain what a put option is? So basically, we had the right to force them to buy our remaining shares at uh, not a predetermined multiple, but 
basically there's a mechanism that they call baseball arbitration, which is effectively um, a, a way to negotiate the fair market price. So we come up with the price, they come up with the price. We sort of have a negotiation period. And then if, um, if we can't agree on a price, then we each submit a bid to an arbitrator and they will pick a number. So you're incentivized to not be too unreasonable. Um, so that, uh, yeah, I mean, that was how that all came together. Um, was, you know, we had this put option and, um, that sort of gave us comfort that, well, if we build, if we create a lot of value, then we'll be able to, um, you know, capitalize on it in, you know, the longer term. Got it. So that's, so you had a, you sold 51% IAC for people who don't know that name, that's Barry Diller's company. He's been famous for buying up internet companies and, and taking advantage of, you know, economies of scale. He's been prolific at that, as I understand it. So you, you took 51%, so you, you became a minority shareholder, but you had this put option, which enabled you to sell the remaining 49% at, a, at, a, at effectively a, a fair price that you would you felt you were protected. So what happened? Did What was that period like after 2006 and you sold to IAC? It started off great, and then it quickly became not great. Um, you know, part of the issue was we sold a niche content business to a very large multi-billion dollar public company who had very large ambitions for what we were going to build. How much and, revenue did you guys have? <clears throat> I think it was about six or seven million dollars the year that we sold, but we were operating at about a 50 percent EBITDA margin. Okay, so, so it, was, had, it was profitable. Uh, and this is college humor plus busted tees plus Vimeo. Yeah, Six Vimeo was just an expense bucks. at that point. We were not making money on, on Vimeo at that point. Got it. Okay. Got it. So back to IEC. So you're a $6 million business, but really fat profit margins. You go to work for IEC and what happens next? So what happens next is we start missing our projections pretty quickly. And um, we had, you know, obviously you're out selling your business. You sort of expect that you're going to continue to grow on a certain trajectory. And then all of a sudden, you know, Facebook and YouTube start to eat everybody's lunch. And um, we couldn't quite see the writing on the wall, right, you know, at that moment. But it became clear, you know, over the next few years that, well, YouTube is a huge force. Um, obviously, looking at it today, like the idea of starting a business like collegehumor.com is just like, you know, impossible to even imagine. Um, so we'd sold a, a, a bad business model effectively. Um, that was, you know, it made sense in the early 2000s. It was starting to make less sense. Um, that was also combined with the fact that, you know, I was 25 years old and now I was reporting to Barry Diller, who's, you know, this iconic businessman and, um, and not known for being, you know, uh, having a soft touch with managing people. So, um, so, you know, it was, and, and I'm also a very different type of person. Um, I don't, you know, I don't think I could ever work in that type of environment again. Like I don't respond well to people yelling at me. I don't, um, you know, it's just not, <laughs> it's not who I am. Um, so all of a sudden I'm in this like, you know, conference room that's, you know, massive with like a million dollar carpeting, which is actually true. Um, and you're sort of sitting there getting yelled at by these like very adult grown men who are like a smarter than me, b like 
orders of magnitude more experience than me and C, now they like own my business. So, so it wasn't a super fun experience. I learned a ton from them. Um, I'm glad that I did it, but I can't say that I enjoyed it. How did it end? Did you exercise the put option? We did. Although, you know, that those put options are, uh, are tricky, right? Because, um, first off, you know, the bigger company ends up having a lot of leverage in these negotiations um, for a variety of reasons. But, you know, you don't really want to go to arbitration um, because that can be expensive. And when you're talking about a business that's, you know, maybe if it's a business worth billions of dollars, it would go differently. But our business was not worth that. So, you know, there's incentive to not go to arbitration. You also have to imagine that the arbitrator is likely to side with IAC or the or any big company. Um, over yeah. like some smaller entrepreneurs. I just think it's hard to expect that there's not going to be some conflict there. Um, and we never went to arbitration. So I am just sort of, you know, recalling my, the advice that I was given by our attorneys and people that, you know, had been through it. And I think it's also very unusual that you end up going to arbitration. I think, um, I think someone who used to work at IAC told me it was like one in 10 actually go to arbitration. So when we finally did exercise our put, it was fine, and I was happy with our price. I think it was actually a good price, um, but we had to extend our put. So it was originally a five-year put, and then when we were, we found a production company that we wanted to buy, um, which we did buy. But in doing that, we were sort of told, "Well, you need to take you know another fifteen million dollars on your balance sheet, and we're going to dilute you at what we think the business is worth now, which is not as much as we paid you for it." So we got, you know, our equity was reduced, which was frustrating. Um, it all worked out in the end, but it was very, it wasn't a, a, a awesome moment. Um, just given Josh, we, you just went way over my pay grade. So you yeah. kind of threw in a couple of things there and it just went right over my head. I felt like okay. I was back in university. So, so explain that to me one more time. So you've got you, you sold 51%, you've got a put option on 49%, meaning you are theoretically entitled to, to sell your shares at a predetermined loose formula yep. to IAC. You say, okay, I want to sell these shares. They say, okay, we'll buy them. Is that what happened? So yes, but before that happened, we had to punt on the, the date from, it was... It went from being five years out to now um, eight years out. And in order, we basically said, all right, we want to buy this other company. Um, they said, okay, um, in order to do that, you're going to have to extend your put and you're going to have to take a lot of dilution. Um, or, you know, you could just not do this deal, which everybody, including us, thinks is a good deal. And we think everybody's going to make money. But that was sort of like, you know, a little bit, you know, the reality with, a company like IAC, you know, to their credit for their shareholders is when they have leverage, they use it. Um, and we were at a point where we didn't have a lot of leverage. We were running a business that was growing at a decreasing rate. Um, we were kind of grasping for their opportunities to have a bigger outcome in the end. Um, so, you know, we got squeezed a bit. Um, when we finally did exercise our put, um, we did get some value from the company that we had acquired, um, and we did get um, a very fair value for the college humor business. 
Um, the Vimeo business had been spun out by that point, so we didn't receive any value for that. Um, Vimeo was sort of left for dead a couple times over the years. Um, you know, the Vimeo that exists today, it looks a lot like the Vimeo that we made back in 2005. Um, but we haven't been involved in it since, you know, it's been 15 years. So it's, it's a very different business and we can't really, we can, I can take some credit for it existing. I can't take much and I certainly can't take any credit for how successful it is today. Got it. Got it. So you got some value in, in that put option play. You had some value for college humor and how did they value it on a multiple of revenue or EBITDA or how, what was the valuation mechanism there? You know, it was tough because the business became unprofitable pretty quickly intentionally because, you know, the whole idea, and this was something I didn't understand when I sold the business, you know, IAC has a lot of companies and for something to be meaningful to IAC, it has to be a big business. We were not a big business and college humor never became a big business. Um, but, you know, from my perspective, I owned 49% of a company that was generating millions of dollars a year. It had a tremendous amount of value to me personally. To IAC, it was just a blip. So from their perspective, not unlike a venture capitalist who's like, let's pump as much money into a business as we can. And hopefully it's a billion dollar outcome. If it's not, then it goes to zero. And that's okay because we you know, bet on 20 other companies in this fund. I think IAC was taking a similar approach to us, which was to say, like, this is only interesting if it becomes big. So we want you to take a big swing. And that was always a little challenging for me because I didn't really, you know, I, I grew up in this business, you know, counting pennies, right? Like I was, I wasn't used to just like spending money um, without knowing that it was going to generate a return in the short term. So the idea of spending millions of dollars in hopes that something would become valuable in the future was difficult for me. So I think a lot of the friction between myself and Barry and IAC management really stemmed from that simple just disconnect where I was trying to preserve value in something that I owned a tremendous piece of, you know, it was half of my personal net worth was in this business. They were trying to invest in something and grow it so that maybe it meant something to them because it, at the, you know, at the time it meant basically nothing to them. So that was part of the issue. When it came time to exercise the put, the business was not profitable. So it was hard to value. Um, I think in the end, it was, you know, there were some other people who were interested in buying the business. And I think, you know, a small process was run to see if it made sense to sell it. Um, I don't, obviously they didn't sell it. So, but I, I think that the numbers that came back in that process were also used as sort of a comp for like, you know, what we thought it was worth. So it actually turned out to be quite fair in the end. Um, I wasn't so sure that it would end up that way, but it, but it, fortunately it did. Do you, do you recall how they arrived at a valuation? Like, was it a multiple of revenue? If it, if it wasn't I think profitable? it had to be a revenue multiple. It's been a couple of years, so I don't remember exactly. But, you know, there was, um, we also had a production company that was um, the one that we bought that, you know, required us to, um, you know, take some dilution. And that was, um, a, you know, basically like, almost like a terminal value because it, you know, we had these assets that were generating, um, revenue, you know, 
TV shows and that sort of thing. Um, so you could kind of do the math for like what those might be worth. Um, so that was part of it. And then the, you know, the college humor business was, was, yeah, just a, you know, a function of the, um, you know, revenue and, and that it couldn't have been profit because we weren't making any money. And by that point, I'd already bought the Busted Tees business house. So that that wasn't a factor. Yeah, I want to go there next. So the Busted Tees business, uh, if I'm getting this right, you had College Humor. Uh, Ricky's kind of a genius at coming up with cool, creative things. You build a t-shirt company because you're like, well, this guy's making all this money. So you had Busted Tees as a t-shirt company and College Humor. Vimeo was a bit of a side project. You saw the future of video. You sell it all collectively to IAC. Walk me through how you then scraped out busted T's from that equation and kind of yeah, took so that. And I always loved the t-shirt business. Um, it was so simple and sort of elegant as a business model. Like you're coming up with ideas, you're putting it on a blank t-shirt and you're selling it and sometimes we would sell a lot of them and it was it was just fun um after we sold to iac you know the busted tees business was making you know call it like a million dollars a million and a half dollars a year in profit um so it was you know again by my 25 year old standards owning 35 percent of it that's great uh, by iac standards it's like what are we why are we even talking about this you know it was just like a distraction in their view so at a certain point, Barry Diller told me, I don't want you spending one second of your time on this business. And and basically it was like, uh, if it ever makes less than $250,000 a quarter, I'm shutting it down. <laughs> so like, you can't work on it, nor, you know, so it was just like, okay, um, well, that's frustrating because I still owned a big piece of it. So if he shut it down, it would just be, you know, imagine owning a, a big chunk of a business that's making over a million dollars a year and it just gets shut down without you having a say. So that was sort of where we were. Um, I had a five-year employment agreement that was coming near an end. And I think everybody knew I wasn't necessarily the person who Barry was going to want to like, you know, continue running the business. I didn't want to be that person. Um, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, not, you know, an operator of a, you know, and a, you know, division of a public company. That's just like, not the, you know, that's not who I am um, as an operator. So we all kind of collectively decided we're going to hire a new CEO. I'm going to put my pencil down and that was it. Um, so in the process of doing that, I had some equity that was given to me at the time of the acquisition, which had I not vested yet. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I can't remember. I think it was my idea, but to be honest, I don't, I, I can't even recall. I think maybe it was because they wanted to shut it down or, I mean, it's been, you know, 13 years. Um, but what I do remember is, uh, you know, sitting down with the CFO and saying like, look, well, I have, you know, this employment. And by the way, they had, they had um, upped my employment agreement. So they had to pay me for the next four years. Um, whether I worked there, you know, I could have just like, not come into the office. Um, and that was part of, you know, another deal. We, there were a lot of little deals that we did over the years that changed all of these sort of dynamics. Um, but at this point, I'm sort of sitting there. We'd hired this new CEO. Everybody knew that, you know, I was not going to be the CEO anymore. Um, and I didn't really have a whole lot to do, honestly. Um, I didn't want to sit and just like collect a paycheck for four more years. 
So I basically said, what if you just give me the busted teas business um, and, you know, you don't have to give me the IAC equity and you don't have to pay me for the next four years. And they said, well, that would be kind of a rich deal. Like, what if you give us, I think it came to like $400,000, which is like the difference between what they thought the business was worth and what all of my equity and everything else was worth. And, you know, based on like the value of the inventory and so on. So I was like, okay, so that, sure. So then I did that. May 1st, 2011 is when I left. And the day I left, I brought like six people with me who were the Busted Tees team, moved into like a, a, you know, a kind of dingy loft with like a small mouse problem. <laughs> and versus like my IC <laughs> office was like floor to ceiling glass windows in the Frank Geary building where like, you know, I had a like little like private mini refrigerator with like, you know, the drinks I liked in it. Like, so it was a big change, but I loved it. It actually felt, um, even to this day, I would prefer that. Um, it just feels more comfortable to me. And um, it's just like the, the culture that is built in that type of environment is more, you know, pleasant to me. So anyway, so we go yeah, and then just you, before we go too far into busted tees, I just want to ask what could you put a, could you put a, an estimate to the value of your IAC options plus the four years of salary? Like, could you, yeah, it was like, what that was worth? it was like two and a half million dollars. Okay. So plus the 400 grand you put in. So you bought busted tees, Basically, you could maybe make an argument for around three million bucks. That's right. Yeah, um, and then it was making more than a million dollars in profit every year. By that point, it was down a little bit. It had sort of. I think that was part of the reason why they were also willing to sell it. Is it did fall below that number that Barry said I'm going to shut it down. Um, so, I think the year that I bought it back, it made six or seven hundred thousand dollars in profit. Okay. And then it's just kind of, you know, and it had been on a sort of downward trajectory for the past three years. And then I bought it back and then just felt confident that I could do better if I was focused on it. And sure enough, you know, the following year made a million bucks and then it made a little more and, you know, it kind of just reversed course. Um, and also, you know, put me in a position where I felt like I had early in the college humor days, which was, you know, this little t-shirt business, I don't think is like the thing that I'm going to, you know, go down in history for <laughs> like the thing that's going to like, you know, um, uh, be my, like, your legacy. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, so I sort of felt like it would be a good starting point to build something else. So I was very, you know, kind of feeling frustrated at times and sort of, you know, wishing that I could come up with something bigger, um, and had a couple of false starts. And ultimately, that's what led me to build T Public was sort of that desire to do something that just felt more scalable. Okay, so walk me through what what was the pivot between Busted T, which was your own creative on t-shirts that people bought, as I understand it, to yep. what ultimately became T Public? So the the reason that I first had the idea for T Public was you know, uh, when you're coming up with your own ideas for a t-shirt, right? Like you have, um, a certain cost that is associated with actually producing it. Right. So you have to make 144 units as a minimum. Um, you have to burn screens, you have to, you know, take inventory, you have to pay somebody to design it. You have to pay somebody to come up with the idea, you know, all these things. So, you know, there's a real cost 
And we realized pretty quickly that the more shirts that we would release, the more revenue we would do. At the same time, you know, you've released 20 t-shirts in a week. One of them might sell seven and the other one might sell 700. So you just don't know what's going to do well, even after doing it for many, many years. It was still always a crapshoot. Um, so, you know, we, we started to think about, well, what if we just figured out a way to, you know, put a threshold on um, sales in order for a shirt to go to print? So basically, like, we're just going to put all the designs out and let people decide what they want to purchase. And if enough people decide they want to purchase it, then we'll make it. So that was the original idea. And then, it shifted in that first year because, um, well, the, the biggest reason is digital printing really took off. And, you know, the early examples of digital printing that I saw, you know, in the early 2000s were like kind of just like very low quality iron on patches like you would get on like your little league T-shirt like way back in the day. Um, what happened, though, is digital printing became very high quality and the cost started to come down. So we sort of shifted the model and then said, well, how about instead we just make it, you know, an open marketplace and any designer can upload any designs that they want to sell on a t-shirt. And then we'll just handle everything from the production fulfillment, you know, et cetera. Um, and that was when the business started to really grow, you know, the first year before we made that shift, it was pretty flat. And then we made that shift and then it started growing 50% month over month. So I think, you know, the first year, the business did maybe $200,000 in revenue. And then I think the second year, maybe we did $4 million in revenue or five. So it grew very quickly after that first year. Wow. And, and, and this, and again, so I understand that this, the pivot, instead of designing it, specking it, buying 144, you let people upload their own designs and then basically you almost like a Kickstarter, the user community would select the shirts that they want to produce by pre-ordering them effectively. Kickstarter for t-shirts was the original concept. Yes. Then it shifted more to, um, you know, an open marketplace again, where anybody could upload anything. And by the time I sold T public in 2018, we had over 3 billion active SKUs that one could theoretically purchase on the website. Uh, the fact that we didn't have inventory is what made that possible. So um, most of those designs never get would get purchased. But, you know, it was basically just allowing for anybody to upload anything, which, you know, starts to create a, a massive curation problem. But on the customer acquisition side, you are pulling in customers from so many different, uh, you know, search terms that it really became an organic search business. And that was the inflection point and in, in how it really grew into a, a, a bigger business. When it became an organic search, like people were searching for funny t-shirts and you guys would pop. Yeah, because my first thinking was that the designers would be the marketing in the same way that like in Kickstarter, you start a Kickstarter campaign, you know, the, the people behind the campaign will make a video and, you know, they do the marketing. And if it's successful, sure. I, obviously the Kickstarter platform gives them a boost, but, you know, you sort of have to do it yourself to a certain degree. Um, the issue with that when it comes to t-shirts is most t-shirt designers are not good at marketing. 
So that just didn't work. People weren't able to generate enough sales from their social traffic. Um, a couple of people were, but the majority of people were not. So we really had to build an engine that generated the demand ourselves. Um, and fortunately, we were able to do that. And it, it, you know, again, like when I had the idea for this business, I was not like, we're going to build an organic search, you know, <laughs> monster that just has all these different skews. You know, it was not planned out that way. But I think, you know, pretty quickly, we started to feel our way into that. And that was ultimately um, what made the biggest difference. I mean, you know, if you have an e-commerce business and you are out there acquiring every customer with, you know, Facebook ads, paid search, whatever, it's really hard for, for that to work. There's a couple of verticals, a couple of businesses that have done a great job of it. But broadly speaking, it is hard unless you have some secret sauce around customer acquisition, something that has a little bit of virality into it, some sort of, you know, network effect, something that just utilizes the power of the internet in a real way um, versus, you know, having to acquire every customer again and again and again. Um, I think, you know, that was the magic of T Public is we, we created, uh, you know, that sort of framework that just worked um, from, from a customer acquisition perspective. And that's, that's why it worked. You were able to get organic traffic. So people typing into Google, words that would send them to your site exactly and that's the benefit of having an open marketplace like that because um you know something you know pop culture events would happen and we would have you know during the you know trump clinton election it's like we had people designing shirts pro and against both sides you know it was like um that was the case with uh, you know, any political issue or any, you know, piece of uh, content or something you could, you know, I was always, sometimes I would just get bored and I'd be like, I wonder if we have a t-shirt about this, like just random thing that like, you know, one of my kids said or something. And like, sure enough, there's like pages of it. Um, so you also end up with these like, you know, very passionate sub communities of people who are passionate about, uh, you know, something obscure or something, whether it's like a, an old comic book or like, you know, a TV show that like maybe you've, you know, I'd never heard of. Um, and then there's fan art that's get that gets created around that area, which that wouldn't really work on a busted tease model because you know, you're trying to appeal to a larger group of people. This really leaned into a long tail model where you've got, you know, like um, bronies, you know, kind of grown men who are really into my little pony. Like, they buy a lot of brony t-shirts. Like, who knew? <laughs> you know, so there were a lot of things like that. Is there really a, such a thing as gronies? Bronies, yeah. Oh, Look bronies, up bronies. Okay. You'll see, like, very manly looking men wearing, like, unicorn, you know. <gasps> uh, <That's> awesome. <laughs> so it's, you know, and it's, and I you would discover all these kind of funny little pockets of the internet um, that were buying, you know, t-shirts that they sort of, you know, associated them with whatever that thing was. Did you ever, you know, I think any sort of two-sided market runs the risk of somehow, uh, you know, being seen as endorsing a certain seller. Did you ever have to like police what you were putting up on the site oh, yeah. to make sure? Yeah. Okay. It was... Hectic. Um, I mean, we would, if I were 
back in, you know, I don't know what, the, I haven't been involved in the business for a couple of years now. Um, but at the time, during the amount of time that we've spent speaking to each other today, um, my phone would have had dozens and dozens of cease and desists. Um, so it was, you know, and some of them, you know, we, we tried to always take the policy of, you know, there's the DMCA, which we follow as closely as possible, that gives us the right to act as sort of a, you know, neutral platform. Um, and what does the DMCA stand for? It's the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. It basically says that, you know, if you comply with a certain protocol around, you know, takedown notifications and, you know, for example, if, um, you know, somehow I, you know, on, on Public, there's a picture of your logo for your brand and it ended up on TeePublic. Um, you know, we take it down immediately. There's sort of a process with which the artist gets notified and, you know, all this sort of legal stuff that is very fine tuned to be as, you know, to limit liability as much as possible. And 99.9% .9 of the time, that was fine. Um, and, you know, we would take it down and people were satisfied. But then you get the occasional bad actor or somebody who just wants to, you know, have a lawsuit for sake of having a lawsuit. And those were actually the ones that were the most annoying because, um, you know, they're just like ambulance chaser attorney types who just are chasing down, you know, dollars. And um, that was, you know, <laughs> I did not enjoy being on the receiving end of that. Um, but that was just one of the, you know, costs of doing business. I think, you know, we were, we really tried our best to act well and to not be jerks and to, you know, we didn't want to steal people's IP. Um, and when we found out that somebody was, we, you know, acted as best we could, but that still meant that there was a lot of just legal back and forth and things that we had to deal with. Who's the we when you put up your own unvested stock options and your own four years worth of salary and you put up 400 grand of your own cash? I'm assuming you owned 100 percent of Busted Tees when you scraped it out or did you I have did. partners? I did. And then I hired a GM who was a young guy named Adam Schwartz, who turned out to be exceptionally talented and ended up giving him um, a, a small piece of the business. Um, over the you know the coming years, how um, big did you get it before you decided to sell it? When we sold busted, I'm sorry, T Public, um, the business made in 2018. Uh, I think it was about four and a half million dollars in profit on 41 million dollars in revenue. I think. I hope Barry Diller doesn't hear this. Oh, he knows. Um, <laughs> he was, we actually, I, I don't keep in touch with him, um, but I do see him from time to time. And he invited a bunch of IAC alumni to a, a dinner at, or a lunch um, at CES. I think it was CES. Um, and uh, so we were there and everybody sort of, you know, John Foley had started Peloton was there. You know, there are a lot of people who had gone on to start you know, very valuable companies. And um, Barry asked me to sort of tell the story. So, um, you know, he was, he, he does not hold uh, any negative feeling. I think he was very kind and supportive about it, actually.
Oh, that's great. Well, that's very generous of them. So you're 41 million in revenue, four and a half million dollars in profit. Was there a trigger that made you want to sell? Yeah, I mean, the reality is I didn't think that T Public was a business that was going to be acquired. I didn't I thought, you know, the legal issues that I just described, um, they were sort of an existential threat in my view. I I was not sure that you know, a private equity firm. I actually spoke to a couple of private equity firms. They were, you know, once they understood that risk, became less interested in the business. Um, and then realized that there were actually a couple, you know, t-shirt businesses or, you know, Redbubble being one of them that understood the space and were interested in acquiring the business. Um, you know, I also sort of felt like, you know, I enjoyed running Public. The truth is I miss it. Like, I, I wish I still owned it. Um, I don't regret doing the deal, but I would have liked to have done the deal and continued <laughs> to own a business like TeePublic. It's hard to build a business that is successful like that. It's it's not something that you can just go out and, and do again, you know, the, the very next day. Um, it's also harder to motivate to do that when you don't need the money in the same way that you did when you were younger, which at least for me, I think some people have endless amounts of motivation. You know, I've I'd rather just have dinner with my family uh, and my kids at night versus like going to like a networking event or doing the stuff that I had the energy for when I was younger. So, um, so all that being said, uh, I was happy to continue running Tea Public indefinitely. It's just a cash flow generating business. I was making a lot of money. Um, I was that felt good. I enjoyed the people I worked with. Um, I enjoyed the business. I didn't enjoy the legal stuff that stressed me out, but otherwise. It was great. And then I just got an offer that was basically, you know, with what I had made previously and adding this to that, I didn't ever have to work again. That was, you know, I, I sort of did that math. And and I, for whatever reason, I think this is um, the wrong goal to have, but it was a goal of mine was to sort of make enough money so that I never had to work again. And I could sort of continue living a really nice lifestyle indefinitely and, and have no pressure. So when I, when I saw that opportunity, I took it and then very quickly afterwards realized, well, I do want to work and like, yeah, like, it, you know, it kind of feels nice to have achieved this, but it also, like I said, it, it's, it's not a motivating thing. It actually is the opposite for me. I, I didn't have the same, you know, identical fire that I had when I was a 24 year old, like desperately trying to, to make it. So I think in a way it's sort of, you know, it puts you in a situation where you actually, you know, maybe less willing to take risks because you don't want to disrupt, you know, you have everything you want financially speaking. So why would you risk that um, so that you can make more work for yourself? You know, your incentives change and it becomes a different, you know, a different problem to solve. And again, like I enjoyed going to the office. Uh, I still enjoy, you know, working and, and having a business. Um, but, you know, it was, it was like I had enough money to buy, you know, the apartment and the beach house and the things that I wanted but I didn't necessarily have a business that I enjoyed running anymore, you know, so that was a real loss. Um, and I think, you know, the most depressed I've been as an adult, both times, I think, were the periods after selling my two businesses, um, which is sort of 
And I've heard people say that before. And, and I knew going into selling the tea public business that I felt that way after selling the college humor business. Um, but I still sort of, you know, raced towards the finish line and then, you know, sold the business in November of 2018, left the company two months later. And then, you know, January of 2019, you know, I'm in New York City. It's cold. It's snowing. I have nowhere to go. And I'm like, I guess, like kind of rich, but that's it. <laughs> you know, it's like it's not that actually doesn't feel as good as maybe it sounded to me. Um, and then I you know, went on this sort of multi-year journey to kind of find my way and, and find other projects that were exciting to work on. And it wasn't easy. And it's still a challenge to really, um, you know, piece together opportunities and things without going out and starting something super ambitious from scratch, it can be challenging to find projects that, you know, are more than a board seat meeting once a quarter and less than like, you know, a full-time CEO position, which I don't know that I necessarily have the energy for today. So, you know, it's, it's, um, it's an interesting, uh, <laughs> just an interesting, you know, sort of, um, thing that happens and it's something that very few people have any sympathy for so i you know i'm reluctant <laughs> to talk about it um you know in too much detail but it's also just you know sort of the reality of, of how i had felt no you're you're among friends here and i appreciate you sharing with canter because i think a lot of our listeners have either experienced that firsthand or will experience it and so knowing uh that sense of loss uh, before it happens, I think is is a big deal. So I appreciate you sharing. You mentioned that you got an offer that meant with the money you made off College Humor plus this, you kind of wouldn't have to work again. How did the offer come about? I mean, like multi billion dollar offers are just going to come out of this out of out of uh, the air. So did did you approach them? Did they approach you? Like, did you hire? There a was banker? a like was I didn't hire a banker. Um, there was a company called uh, Spreadshirt that was based out of Germany that wanted to buy Tee Public, and they reached they, out to you. They reached out to us, and you know, I was sort of like, you know, if we could get a deal done for ten times EBITDA, you know, which is basically just ten times net income, um, that might be interesting. So that was sort of how it started, and then they sort of continued to poke around and then finally you know gave us a term sheet and we started to move forward with that what was the, what were their terms what did they give you on a multiple of EBITDA um i think it was 10x but also our our income was growing during this whole period so what was you know 32 million dollars um we ended up selling the business for 41 million dollars um but 32 sort of felt like the right price when we first started talking and then the business was, you know, growing over all these months. It started to feel like actually maybe that wasn't the right price. Um, but I was still moving forward with that. And there was an earnout component as well. Um, so, you know, if it continued to grow, we would have made more on the back end. Redbubble then, you know, and while this was happening, we reached out to a couple other, um, you know, like Custom Inc. was a big t-shirt company that we talked to and they weren't really interested, but they'd you know, maybe they were, but probably not. Um, and then really sort of on a whim, I, I reached out to Redbubble and was just sort of like, hey, you know, I think we might be selling our business, but thought you might just be interested. The CEO gets back to us right away. And long story short, has us an offer in like 
48 hours, like really fast. He was a new CEO trying to sort of make a mark. So all of a sudden we had, you know, an offer for, you know, considerably more than what we were negotiating. And also, you know, I think it's a decent lesson in overplaying your hand because, you know, the the German company was really kind of turning the screws on us on some deal points that were not, you know, super important. And I think we were in the right to ask for it to be the way that it was. I don't think we were being unreasonable, but, you know, they sometimes people in these deals, I think, can just, you know, they need to win on points that, you know, maybe aren't that important. And I think that was starting to happen. So we were getting a little fatigued and frustrated. If they had just moved faster, I think we would have just done the deal and we would have never even had that conversation. Um, I think when you delay a deal, you know, time is the enemy of all deals is sort of the the mantra I always have in any of these situations, whether it's buying an apartment or, um, or selling a business or you know, buying something important, like, you know, the, the longer you let it sit out there, the more bad things that can cause it to fall apart. And that happened to them. Um, and, you know, then we had this uh, offer from Redbubble. And, you know, in order for us to jump ship, so to speak, and, and start pursuing their deal, you know, we were very specific about, like, this needs to happen quickly. You know, we need to get all of these terms that we had already negotiated and like the things that we weren't able to get from the other deal, but we thought that we deserved. And they were basically just like, okay, okay, you know, all of those things. And then we we did the deal very quickly. I understand. I, I looked at the public disclosures before this call from Red Bull. I think it was 41 million total, 36 cash, and then another, am I getting it right? 30, I've got a fun it's 40, It was 41. There was a holdback, um, which we got all of that money, fortunately. Um, so yeah, it was 36 at closing and then another, uh, five, I believe in holdback. Got it. Got it. Got it. So ultimately it ended up being almost, almost bang on 10 X profit. Yep. 10 X. Yeah, exactly. Now, you know, it was, uh, <laughs> while we were in the final stages of the deal, we noticed that the business growth was accelerating. Um, and that it was a moment of like, this actually, you know, we could have like a really serious next year or two. Um, and sure enough, that's what happened. And I think COVID gave a bit of a boost too, but you know, the business grew tremendously over the next couple of years. So you can never time these things perfectly. And um, I think, you know, we, we did a really good deal at the time. Um, if I could have predicted a global pandemic that was going to, you know, have a, major impact on the value of companies like ours. Like I probably could have made a lot of money in a lot of ways, but, um, but yeah, you know, it was, I think at the time I remember feeling I'd rather it be that we're exceeding our projections every month as this deal comes together than the alternative. Um, so you well, know, you'd live the opposite, right? I mean, yeah, at, I mean, at IAC, you'd live that experience. Well, I see. Correct. But we were, you know, we really didn't start to miss our numbers at ISC until after the deal was closed. Um, mm-hmm. At Redbubble, you know, with that deal, we were, you know, the few months that we were negotiating, we just we kept beating our numbers materially. And we've realized that there was, you know, uh, not to get too granular, but there was a, a an SEO mistake that we'd made 18 months earlier. There was a big deal. And 
Um, it took us that whole time to really recover from it. And then we started to realize, oh, wait, this thing that had happened actually, you know, we grew despite it. But had we not made that mistake, we would have grown at a different trajectory. And now that that mistake has sort of expired, our original growth trajectory is back on. So while we thought our growth was slowing, it actually was still increasing. Um, so, you know, had we, known that, we had a huge takedown request from a um, a large media company, and there were a lot of designs and things that needed to come down like it wants, like a huge number. Um, and we were you know, super cooperative. We had like 20 people like scouring the website for like a week, just trying to take down everything that had, you know, any of these, you know, specific IP related um, pieces of content on it. So like tens of thousands of um, designs came down and the way that we did it, it, um, I forget the specific way that we did it wrong, but basically we told Google, you know, all these pages, you know, were errors or, or you know, they weren't redirected in the, the appropriate way. Um, so we got dinged by Google in a real way and it took a very long time to fully recover from it. And it also took us a very long time to, to, you know, and it was really like having some extremely talented SEO experts who were looking at it in a more granular way who were like, oh, this is where the problem was. Like, what happened on this day? What did you guys do then? And then we were like, well, we did this. And he's like, oh, well, that's, <laughs> there's a problem, you know? So, um, but sometimes these things, you know, you, you make a mistake and it can take you a year to even realize that you made a mistake or longer. Um, and that was a good example of that. Um, would it have changed the course of the deal or how we thought about it? You know, maybe, maybe not. Um, but I just thought it was an interesting thing to note. That your business was about to explode and the temptation was there to retrade on the upside and get a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, also, you know, the reality was, um, you know, my business partner was very excited about the deal. I had grown extremely reliant on him. He was, you know, a huge part of our success. And um, I was a little concerned about how long he was going to stick around. And I knew if I had to replace him, that was going to, you know, it was unlikely I was going to find somebody as good as he was. And, you know, so there were some of those types of things out there too, where it's like, all right, we have a, it's a good endpoint. He's happy with the deal. Uh, I'm, you know, really happy with the deal. Uh, this feels like a good decision, you know, for all of, all of the above reasons. Um, but, you know, you, you, it's sort of like, you know, you want your, um, your ex to like be happy in their life, but you maybe don't want them to be like blissful when they leave you. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good analogy. <laughs> yeah. You want them to be happy, but not too happy. Yeah. Not happier than they were when they were with you. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a good analogy. I love that. <laughs> what were the deal points? I'd be curious. Again, our listeners are, you know, many of them are about to go through the process of selling their company. And so these granular details that wouldn't be interesting to a lot of people are very interesting to our listeners. And I'd just be curious though, the a like an example of a deal point that the German company was pushing for that you felt was just an overreach. Do you, do you recall? Yeah, I mean. It's hard to recall exactly, but there were a lot of issues around, you know, certain like, you know, uh, reps and warranties around, um, you know, certain things with like regards to, 
you know, pending litigation or, or future litigation and how that was going to be handled. And, um, you know, for example, if, uh, you know, we were to get sued after the deal had closed and there was, you know, intellectual property that had been uploaded to the site while we were still owners, like how that would be handled and who would pay for that and what the split would be and like those types of issues where, you know, it was a little tricky because you're saying it's like, well, yeah, well, we built this and are delivering it to you as is, but then you're responsible for policing it and for managing any future litigation or, um, you know, those types. So it's, it's a little hard to just give you the keys and then say, you know, well, if you crash the car, like we have to pay for the damage, like that doesn't really work. So like those types of things. And then, you know, there was some also like, you know, the, the sales tax issues with businesses like this for people who work in e-commerce can appreciate how complex it's become. Um, it's actually, I think some of the software now is a bit easier, but you know, there were just issues around, um, you know, potential sales tax liabilities and making sure that, you know, we were, uh, like totally buttoned up there. And like, I think we were, and, you know, there were, um, just, you know, really just like trying to have all of that type of, you know, the finance and legal side buttoned up in a way that was fair and not, um, you know, overly punitive to us. Um, so those were like, you know, some of the examples. And then I think, um, you know, beyond that, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm having a hard time remembering like some of the specific moments, but I think it's also just like, you know, as you're going through these long form documents and you have, you know, a hundred little nitpicky points and then you get a draft back and like two of your changes were accepted and it's like, okay, well, like you guys, this doesn't feel like we're working towards meeting in the middle here. We're just sort of you know, you're trying to steamroll us and, you know, that doesn't feel great. So when a better offer comes along, it's easy to say, okay, well, um, these guys are just going to give us a fair deal off the bat and we don't have to like hammer them, you know, every day for four months. To, to Did you have to need. let your no shop clause expire before you engage with? We Red didn't Bull. have a no shop clause because oh. part of the issue, um, I guess this is an interesting detail is they were they made the decision to have a super robust term sheet. So it was a many, you know, a 10 or 12 page term sheet that was then going to become the long form document. And as opposed to a more simple term sheet and a robust long form document, they wanted to negotiate the term sheet more fully, which turned out to be a bad decision because we never signed that term sheet. So as a result, we were able to just jump ship and, and, you know, we did have to sign the term sheet immediately with Redbubble. So, you know, the other, uh, the other company was, you know, I felt really bad to be honest, because, you know, they had put a lot of time in and even though they were kind of jerking us around a little bit, um, it was, uh, you know, you don't, you don't like to, you know, see people lose a deal and, and they put a lot of time and effort into it. So that was sure. a very hard phone call to make, but ultimately just had to, you know, make the, the best business decision. And, um, and, you know, that was, that was clear what, what it was. 
Ricky and Jake were two of your partners in College Humor. Did they join you in Tee Public? They did not. So Ricky stayed at College Humor for a couple of years um, and then went to Facebook. And he's been at Facebook for several years. I don't I've lost track of how long it's been. Um, and then Jacob, uh, when he left, started working on some you know, music related tech projects and some art stuff and was kind of, uh, you know, had an eclectic um, group of companies that he was spending time on. Um, yeah, yeah. We're. St- I mean, I still. I- How do they feel about the success of T Public? I think everybody was really excited about it. I think, you know, um, I think people were surprised that you know Busted Tees, which I think I had a couple of moments when I bought back the Busted Tees business where I ran into a guy that I don't really know super well, but um, you know, all he said was like, "Is that going to be?" Like, are you going to be able to like support a family in New York on this t-shirt business? You know, like those kind of questions. And you're like, okay, like I could feel my sort of place in the world, take a big step down. Like college humor was cool and people liked it. And I would get like meetings with important people who like cared what I had to say about things. Um, And then I kind of went from that to like owning this like little t-shirt business and you could just feel it. Like people just didn't care about me as much. I didn't, you know, I didn't get invited to the same entrepreneur events. I didn't get, you know, a lot of the stuff that I had become, you know, I, I was identified so much as the college humor guy. Um, when I was stripped of that, that was another example of something that, you know, you, you can sort of imagine how something's going to make you feel, but until you actually go through it, it's, you know, it's really hard to, to imagine. And um, that was very much the case with, college humor and, and leaving and going and busted tees. And I didn't feel great about myself. I sort of felt like I had been a little bit of a failure at IEC in a way because, um, you know, I sold them a business and it didn't go as well as I'd wanted. And when I was first building the college humor business, I felt like 10 out of 10 amazing. Like, this is so fun. I'm working with my best friends. I'm like, you know, this thing's working. Like, people think it's cool. Like, it was just, it was everything. Um, and then I went from that to feeling like, I'm just getting yelled at by Barry Diller and like that didn't feel good. And like, I just didn't feel like I was great at my job because he wasn't happy and, you know, those types of things. And then um, it wasn't really until Busted Tees happened and I built Tee Public and that became a success that I sort of regained confidence and felt like, okay, like I did this a second time. Like it wasn't just a fluke. Like I know how to do this. Um, Like I'm not bad at business, you know, like all these sort of self-doubts that you have when something doesn't go exactly as you imagined. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, everybody, certainly my close friends, I think we're all like super excited about it. And, um, what was your dad's reaction? He was super excited too. I think, you know, he's been really helpful to me. Like I said, since I was 18 and, you know, he actually left his job right around the time um, when I had started College Humor and sort of ended up retiring a bit earlier than he had anticipated. So he had a lot of free time to help me, um, you know, in all of my businesses. And the T Public business, I mean, he was essentially acting as our CFO towards the end, never really like hired for that position. But by the end, he was, you know, he had an accounting background and was much more patient with numbers than I am. Um, so it was really helpful. So I think you gave you know, your old man some options. Yeah, I did actually. 
Um, so it, it you know, it, 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 um, yeah, he was, he was excited and, um, and he was super close to it. So he knew, you know, every step of the way what was happening. Sure. Uh, you've been super generous with your time. Are you up for a very quick lightning round of just a word or two answers on a couple of questions? Sure. Sure, he says exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> what was the slimiest trick? I mean, you talked to lots of potential acquirers, investors, private equity groups. Slimiest trick a potential acquirer tried to play on you in the process of selling one of your companies? Um, I don't know that anybody was super slimy. I think, you know, when we thought we had a deal to sell our business to Viacom before IAC and, um, you know, I just thought that it was like a done deal and we were getting sort of wined and dined and flown to, you know, the video music awards in Miami and all these cool things. And, um, you know, but they didn't do anything wrong. I was just naive to think that the deal was like, you know, definitely happening when it when it most definitely was not anywhere close to approved. So, um, yeah, I don't think, you know, I haven't fortunately I haven't had to deal with anybody being too slimy. I've had to deal with like you know, Barry Diller, like breaking my back, um, figuratively, but, um, <laughs> I haven't had to deal with, you know, it was never uh, the slimy. Isn't the right word. It's more just like aggressive and being, you know, uh, good at business. <laughs> Biggest mistake you made in the process of selling T public. Um, I don't think I made a mistake. I think that deal was sort of like perfectly executed in a way. I think, you know, you could argue I should have held the business, um, you know, whatever, but I think the price was totally fair. Um, I was able to leave after two months, which is what I wanted. Um, you know, it, it all sort of just fell into place very nicely. Um, so, so I, I don't have any regrets on, how the deal was done. I think you already answered this question about the lowest emotional point you reached in the process of selling, which happened, as I understand it, after you sold uh, T Public. What was the highest point emotionally for you? I think, you know, like going through diligence with one of these deals when at the end of, you know, the road, you like, you know, there's just this big pile of money and you're very excited about that. And, and not just the money, although that's the main piece of it. It's also just this like solidifying, like this was a win, you know, um, which I think is also, you know, as an entrepreneur, that's how you judge yourself. And I think that was important. So, you know, you get, it's like every morning I would wake up and they're based in Australia. So, you know, a lot of times I'd wake up in the morning and I'd have 200 questions to answer. And some of them required, you know, reaching out to like four other people and like, you know, just a lot of work. Um, but I was so energized because I'm like, I'm going to like get all of this done as quickly as possible. Cause I'm, I really felt like, you know, again, the time is the enemy of all deals like that mantra, just like in my head, like you have to get this done. You have to get this done. So I was really, I mean, I was working really hard to get it done, but I was really enjoying that. Um, hmm. and then, you know, that, up until like, you know, it actually closing and being done, like that was all super exciting. I think, um, you know, what's the saying, like better to travel hopefully than to arrive. Like there's definitely a, a bit of that in the deal process where, you know, the final 
weeks of the deal are are more exciting than the you know few weeks afterwards when you've just like had a you know big wire hit your checking account. You're the first guy I've ever met who liked due diligence. By the way, that's a that's a first <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, what did you turn to? Go ahead. No, I was just going to say. I think it's it's more about just like having like such a a clear purpose of what you need to accomplish right. on a given day or in a given week, and it was just like you know because usually as an entrepreneur you're sort of feeling it out as you go, and it's like I'm gonna like maybe this is the right thing, maybe not, and you're you know it's hard to at times know where to put your energy when this was happening. Not to say that the diligence was fun, you know, in and of itself, but but just sort of having that focus of like, all right, we know what we need to do. We just need to get this deal done. I don't like I don't need to focus on growing the business. I don't need to do anything except like answer these like 1700 questions and get this deal negotiated <laughs> and be done. And that, you know, I, I enjoyed that. How did you teach yourself about the process of selling a business? Is there a a YouTube channel, a TED Talk, a course, a book that you can point our listeners to that's worth uh, checking out? Um, not really. I think I remember when I did my first deal, um, there was a guy who's become a good friend um, named Mo Koifman who worked at IC, and he um, was a young guy, but was like, you know, I think his title was vice president of mergers and acquisitions. And I just remember hearing him talk through all the deal points. And I was like, how this guy's not that much older than me. Like, how does he know all these words and like what all this stuff means? Like, I was just so like in awe of like, I knew he'd like gone to Wharton and I knew he'd worked at IC for a while, but I was, I really was like, like, I don't know that I'll ever like know how to do this. You know, it's just, it seems like such a huge amount of knowledge to acquire. And then by the time I did the second deal, you know, I'd done enough, you know, early stage investing spending five years at IEC and just sort of, you know, the osmosis of being involved with some deals there. And, you know, you pick up little bits and pieces and then all of a sudden, you know, you're not just like looking at, you know, another language when you see, um, you know, the documents or, or you know, what the, the different terms mean. Um, and then I think also having really good lawyers who can explain some of the things that, you know, maybe aren't intuitive or, you know, maybe I understand what they mean, but I don't really know what like, you know, the market terms should be or, you know, so I think sure I learned a lot from just working with great lawyers. Our first deal, I worked with Allen and Company um, uh, and learned a lot from those guys. So I think it's a little bit of like, you know, each deal I learned a little bit more. And then um, that was also one of the satisfying things about the T-Public deal was just feeling like, oh, I actually like you know, I, I know how to do this. Like, I'm not just like completely relying on other people's judgment. Like I'm actually making the decisions and um, just realizing how far I've come from that first deal where I was really just like, you know, on the calls and kind of glazing over because I didn't know what any of the words actually meant. <laughs> Last question. Tell me you bought yourself a trophy when you sold T Public. You know, I... It was a little bit anticlimactic because I already had an apartment that I was living in with my family. I bought a beach house a couple year or two years earlier, maybe. So like that was kind of like my big thing that I was excited about. So like nothing really changed. I bought I collect watches, so I bought a you know a nice watch 
um, but nothing. Would you buy? You know, um, well, I guess I bought a few, but I bought um, uh, a couple of Patek Philippe's um, uh, 3940R, and I got uh, old um, Rolex Daytona um, 62-63 with the Sigma dial for any of the watch collectors out there. Um, but that was, you know, I was starting to get into watch collecting like right around that time. Um, coincidentally, I've sort of sold a big chunk of my watches um, just because I, you know, sometimes I get into these things and then they become less exciting. And then I'm like, why do I have all this money tied up in wrist watches? That's maybe unnecessary. Well, hang on to one of them because I'm, I'm a huge believer yeah. in having something physical to commemorate the the accomplishment that yeah. you kind of look back on. Not necessarily materialistic, but at least something physical that you can feel in touch. Well, and, the issue is I've actually I'm a wine collector and I'm in the wine business now. Um, and wine has sort of taken the place of like, you know, if I have a, a big event in my life, I drink a nice bottle of wine. But that you know, is extremely ephemeral and you're not holding on to it indefinitely. It's just sort of, you know, it, it, and I think that's part of what I love about it is that it's, you know, it sort of amplifies an evening and everybody sort of recognizes that it's special, but, um, I don't like keep the bottle for the, the closing dinner or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. 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 Where can people find your wine business? What's the URL? Um, the wine business is called Parcel. So it's parcelwine.com. We have a um, a wine bar here in New York City on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Um, and then we we sell wine on the internet. Awesome. So we'll put links to that as well in uh, in the show notes. And is there a, a best place, if someone wanted to reach out to you on social media, are you like a Twitter guy or more LinkedIn? Or what's what's the best place for people to reach you? Um, I or try are you not- anonymous <laughs> these days? Yeah, I try not to tweet. Um, and I have like a thousand LinkedIn messages that I realized I had the other day that I never checked. So that's probably not the best place either. Um, but yes, I don't have a, a great answer. But I guess Facebook sometimes, I don't know. We'll tell people to buy a bottle of wine from Parcel. Yeah, exactly. They can, yeah. When they buy a bottle of Parcel, I'll, I'll send them a note to thank them. You know, Josh, I have to, I have to say this because, you know, oftentimes I'll interview an entrepreneur who's onto a new business and like they're doing it because, you know, they want the publicity for their new business. And, and in your case, I just get a sense of, of genuine wanting to give back to the entrepreneurial community, genuinely sharing your story with as much candor as you could muster. And, and I really appreciate that because, uh, you've obviously had an incredibly successful entrepreneurial career so far, lots more to come, but you've really come at this from the standpoint of just giving without expecting anything in return. So I just want to say thank you on behalf of all of our listeners to, uh, for, for your generous uh, time today. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. We will put everything uh, Josh related in the show notes at builttosell.com. Josh, thanks for doing this. Awesome. Thank you. And there you have it for today's podcast between Josh and John. If you enjoyed today's episode, then be sure you're subscribed to the podcast. If you want to help support Built to Sell Radio, then I encourage you to head over to Apple Podcasts, where there you'll have a chance to leave a rating and review. Ratings and reviews truly help our show grow and get in front of more people just like you. Also, a quick reminder, if you want to watch this full interview, you can do so over at our YouTube channel, which can be found at Built to Sell Radio. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including the definitions for some of the more technical terms used, I would encourage you to head over to our show notes page, which can be found at builttosell.com. 
Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio and video engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisor community are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and I look forward to talking to you again next week.